0: Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me Tracy Jones and me Heather Noble. And in a week when Debenhams moves on with its refinancing plan to the tune of £200 million, speed-limiting technology is going to become mandatory on all new cars from 2022, which will slow us all down considerably. And the Competition and Markets Authority are set to investigate the funeral market amid accusations of price inflation over the past six to eight years. We have chosen something else to focus on. Um, we uh, I came across a, an interesting article via Vistage um, about scale-up companies. And so we thought we'd take a little bit of a look at what they're about and actually start with what is a scale-up company. Now, the d- definition of a scale-up company is a company who has an average annualised return of at least 20% in the past three years with at least 10 employees in the beginning of that period. It's a business that is in its growth phase um, and, or the direction phase, um, whichever way you want to look at it. And there's an organisation called the Scale Up, what do they call themselves? Institute. Institute, yes, that's right. Although they are a limited company, Tracy has found out. And they're, they're, um manifesto as it were is to make britain the scale-up nation of the world so they're looking at businesses that are scaling up and they're starting to look at what that actually means in terms of money um and gdp within the country uh They've written a, a review. Twenty eighteen. There's a, a. It's got two hundred eighty eight pages. So if you really can't sleep, you can work your way through you've all of them, that. You've read them all. I've it? read them all twice. Oh yes, well done. I've read them all twice. Yes, yes. Oh yes. She lied. She lied through her teeth. Um, you've read a review of it, though. I read a, a review of thing. the review. A summary of the review. Yes. Um. And and what it made me. Is, Take time to look at are the, the the different stages of business. So we all know that you know you have you have the the pre-startup phase where you know you're you, it's a, it's a seed stage. Then you have your startup. Then you have the growth phase. Then you're established. Then you expand. Then you might decline and exit, and that's a sort of cycle. But we were talking off just before we came on air that not every business goes through that. Not every business is a scale up business um, for many reasons. For many reasons, and you've got some, you've got some views on that, haven't you, Tracy?
1: Yeah. Well, the main difference between a startup and a scale up is is the challenges that they're facing, and. We've seen a lot of support for startup businesses um, locally and nationally. and the the key difference is a startup is looking to find a repeatable business model. And a scale-up is looking to find a business model that can grow but still maintaining operational controls. And you see this so many times where a small business can really fail at that growth stage because they haven't got either the directors don't agree, you know, the the people who originally started it, they diverge into different directions or actually what they're doing can't, can't be scaled up or they just don't have the support to do it. So that's why I understand the Scale Up Institute was there is to, turn the focus now they actually say it, is to turn the focus from startup support to scale up support personally i think you need both because if only a small percentage of startups go into scale-up businesses then you need it's almost like the funnel approach isn't it yeah. pile loads in before you can actually yeah. Yeah, get yeah. a few of the growth ones out but i think there's, there's a lot of startup businesses that don't want to be bigger. They've been started for reasons other than the intention to become multi-million pound companies. There will be a number that are interested in that. But we know a lot of business people personally that set up a business to either just to survive a lifestyle, to to not be unemployed or to not be employed, just so that you can be your own boss. And they they have the limits of of, um, earning enough money to to satisfy their lifestyle requirements. And there are some people that like to grow to maybe five employees or something like that, but that's comfortable for them. And I think the assumption that every business that starts wants to become a growth business or is only adding value by being a growth business, I think that's a a bit harsh, really. Mm. So personally, I found... um, I understand the intentions of the Scale-Up Institute. I love the research that they've done. But I found some of the wording, in, it, particularly in one of the presentations that I found, was, was quite negative on just a start-up, you just a startup. What about these lovely scale-up businesses? Uh, so th- that's my own personal uh, opinion. Well, every
0: scale-up was a startup at one point. That that is one thing that is definite. Yeah, every scale-up was a startup, but it doesn't mean that every startup will become a scale-up. And I think also, um, as you as you've said, people. At different times in your life, depending on how fast your business grows, depending on how practical it is for that business to grow beyond a certain point, you know, there's only if there's not enough market for you to become a multi million pound business, well, okay. Um, there's not enough and growing a business takes a lot of time Uh, and effort as well. maybe
1: you've found where you're comfortable. I suppose the reason the thing that got my hackles, I suppose, I found a presentation by um that one of the founders of the startup institute Sherry kutu and a number of the um the headlines on the slides were startups do not contribute to national output in big capital letters in green at the top just 1% of sales of more than 1 million pounds six years after they start yeah okay but you're not telling me they're not contributing to society by, you know, the services that they're offering, the products that they're selling, the sheer fact that they're employing at least one person. Um, another one, medium annual sales of a six-year-old firm in the UK are less than £23,000. That doesn't say to me that a startup isn't valuable. It says to me that actually people who've gone out on a limb and, and started a business, become self-employed, might need a bit more financial support because yes. £23,000 know, might be the total household income. They might need yes. a little bit of help there.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the report talks about is um, the number of growth hubs that are around the country, which are, again, that they're 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 looking to support startups and move them into the scale up um, area of their business if it's appropriate and that is they say that the UK is home to around 35,000 scale-ups and the best bit of the whole website for me, um, and, and, the bit and, me. Where, and the bit where I lost I lost myself a little bit was when I was looking at um, the business search part of the yeah, website excellent, isn't it? which you can put in your postcode or um, or any postcode or any county, um, and it will give you details of scale up businesses in that area. And it you know, if you if you just and when look, you say details, it tells
1: you when it was incorporated, the type yeah. of company, turnover, turnover growth, growth, and employee count.
0: Yeah, and I think the employee count is often a really interesting one when you look at the growth. Um, but but you yeah you. You might be surprised, you know, there are organisations on your doorstep. Well, firstly, I mean, I live near Oswestry. I'm quite well um, involved with the Oswestry business community. And yet I came across a couple of significant businesses that I didn't know about or I didn't know by the name at which... They are a scale-up company because a lot of them are holding companies. Yeah. And so you go, crikey, who on earth are they? And then when you look at the list of directors, you go, oh, well, I know those directors. And I thought they were directors of company Y, but they're actually directors of company X. So I found that fascinating because it looked at their turnover, their net, net assets, how many staff, as you say, um just every all their company's house information plus some of the numbers um, so in the wrexham area we've got the likes
1: of village bakery now these are the by that definition of what a scale-up company is yeah so it's village bakery pendine park care uh, there's ash Manor cheese company which is the one on the list which has got the highest turnover 52 million pound company a ninety-one point three percent turnover growth. Wow, it's massive, isn't it? Yeah, uh, a company that really caught my attention was Demon Tweaks. They've got a turnover of forty-eight million pounds. Now, I used to live in Tattenhall, just over the border in Cheshire, and uh, Demon Tweaks started out in a little shop there in the village. A little shop. Front. Oh wow! So just a forty-eight million pound uh, um, scale up company.
0: Okay. And now, fascinating
1: yeah. <laughs> from yeah that
0: is from acorns um <laughs> little acorns
1: i did a bit more research as well because uh, having read that the startup institute was a limited company i i quickly went on to company's house so there are 11 current officers, but only three employees in 2017 so um, the, the directors aren't, aren't actually employees, or some of, not all of them are, because there are 11. So Sherry Kutu um, is the top of the list, and she's the one that's um, is sort of the face of the Institute. But I did notice Martha Lane Fox, one of our previous uh, business leaders that were oh, profiled, yeah, yeah. she's on there. And in 2017, they had turnover of just under £400,000 and had made a loss of £86,000.
0: Gosh. Okay, what, I mean, that's, those stats are really interesting. Where I think this is really powerful for small businesses um, or businesses who want to become scale-up businesses, if these are scale-up businesses and there is a directory of them, one would expect that they are expanding and growing. Therefore, they may have a need for the services that you offer as an organisation.
1: And the good thing about the Scale-Up Institute is they are encouraging companies to support scale-up businesses as well. So that's why they wanted to make the list public is so that people could go, oh, that that business is, is trying hard to grow Let, let's support them yes
0: yeah and I think that so in terms of um in, in terms of our our listeners it's well worth if nothing else it's well worth a look to see who is scaling up in your local area and think about what you might be able to do to support them
1: now news and events from um around Wrexham and the UK and um Stuff that we found that I, well, that I found that looks quite interesting. I don't know if you think yours is interesting, Heather. Can I speak for both of us? I think you can. Okay, then. So the first thing, not everybody will think this is interesting, but it is at least topical. So from Monday, the 1st of April, which is next Monday, most businesses above the VAT threshold will need to keep their records digitally and submit their VAT return using the MTD, Making Tax Digital Compatible Software. So accountants and anybody who's responsible for your VAT will already know the consequences of MTD. If you don't know, then you've had your head in the sand. So listen up. If you're already using software, you'll need to make sure it's MTD compatible. Not all account software is, so please do check. And then sign up for the new service and authorise your software for MTD. If you're not using an accountant or don't currently use software, you still need to sign up. There's lots of information available to help you to prepare and there's lots of information about what you need to do to make sure that you're compliant. If if you do have an accountant, talk to them. They should have already dealt with this for you, if you were listening to them, that is. Now, the <laughs> gov.uk webpages provide information on a wide variety of products, including free software for businesses who have got quite straightforward tax affairs. And they can also advise on sophisticated paid-for solutions. And... Reading the press release from HM Revenue and Customs this week, they've said that they recognise that businesses will require time to become familiar with the new requirements. And during the first year, they will not issue filing or record-keeping penalties where businesses, and this is key, are doing their best to comply with MTD. So if you genuinely make a mistake they'll be lenient. If you're just ignoring it, I'm sure they won't. They say that sanctions will remain possible in cases of deliberate non-compliance and in order to safeguard VAT revenue. No business will be forced to go digital for their VAT returns if they are unable to, not just if you don't want to. And anyone who is already exempt from online filing of VAT will remain so under MTD. And those businesses that are registered for VAT but are below the VAT threshold are also not required to use the Making Tax Digital service but you can, of course, choose to do so. Then a report caught my eye. It was published on Monday and it was um, called Which Occupations Are at Highest Risk of Being Automated? Of course, it's from one of my favourite websites, the Office for National Statistics, who do absolutely fabulous reviews of some of the data. So you don't just have to plunge into the figures and potential automation of occupations, they say, will have an impact on the labour market in the future. Around one and a half million jobs in England. So they're only talking about England with these stats. But they say uh, the studies that they've done are in England. And 1.5 million jobs are at high risk of some of their duties and tasks being automated. The ONS has analysed the jobs of 20 million people in England, hence why they're only talking about England here, in 2017 and found that 7.4% are at high risk of automation. Now, answering that question of who and which occupations, Women and young people who work part-time are most likely to work in the roles that are at high risk of automation. And there are three occupations with the highest probability of automation. They're waiters and waitresses, shelf fillers and elementary sales occupations, all of which are deemed as low-skilled or routine. They also highlighted three occupations at the lowest risk of automation which are medical practitioners, higher education teaching professionals and senior professionals of educational establishments. And these occupations are all considered high skilled. Don't blame me for those definitions. That's come from the ONS. their analysis shows that 70.2% of the roles at high risk of automation are currently held by women. In addition, people aged 20 to 24 years are most likely to be at risk of having their job automated when compared with other groups. If you're interested in reading that, go to the ONS website and look at their recent publication list.
0: What, you're what,
1: frowning at because me. Because I
0: can't <laughs> understand the um, the... Shelf filling role yeah. becoming. I've not automated. seen many robots doing that. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I understand the waitress. You know, like in a McDonald's now, you can order off a screen, can't you? Rather than yeah, and and, and in
1: supermarkets, the the cashier's jobs are they're automated, aren't they? So you have one person helping eight people yes yeah but deal with that machine the... that goes but if
0: please if remove your item from the bag there's area. unexpected <laughs> item in the bagging area yes but if but if a box of tea bags needs to be put on the shelf i don't, know. I don't really know how that's going to work i don't know let's hope it never does okay right so i have some events for you uh thursday the 11th of april this is in london um it's priced between 140 and 200 pounds it's leadership in a day um it it gives you seven skills you need to lead. Um, they are resilience, influence, vision, creative thinking, uh, confident communication, and looking at um, values and brand. Um, it looks like a good Um, it looks like a good session. uh, And that I thought you might be interested in. Then I move on to something a little bit different. Um, You know how much we like TED Talks. This is a TEDx event on the 3rd of May, again in London. Um, It's a paid event. Uh, It runs from nine till six at the Royal Geographical Society in Kensington. And it um, covers the... um, it's being run by London Business School and it starts to look at um, order and chaos in the world of business, um, which I just I just thought was, would probably have some really interesting speakers in there Um they're not declaring who they are yet, but but there's I think it will be varied and of interest. And then finally, um, a full day conference taking place on the twenty third of May. It is free. It is um, slightly closer to home. It's in Manchester, and this is uh, a full day around anybody who sells on Amazon. Um, so they are calling it. Let me just get the accurate title for you. They're calling it AmmaFest. AmmaFest. I don't know why. And it's a full day conference for Amazon sellers. Who's it organised by? It's organised by Online Seller UK. Uh, so this will be for people of whether, whether you're selling a bulk, whether you're selling small items, whether you're thinking of selling on Amazon, and whether you're looking at making that transition from um for your own fulfillment to use in their fulfillment uh, so i think it um i think it it looks like a good one networking opportunities and also ways to promote your amazon shop so um so that's what i've got for you tracy well sounds very interesting i'd like to go to the mall our book this week is one from a series of books by ft publishing financial times publishing and um it's it, it's quite interesting in that I've taken a look at it as a bit of a, a layperson when it comes to the finances. I know I know, I know enough about finances for um, basic everyday business um, requirements. But beyond that, I need to use my accountant, whereas Tracy, across the other side of the desk, is all over the accountant's side of it as well. So it's it's well, interesting. But it
1: wasn't aimed at me, this book.
0: No, that's... The, yes, and... And in fact, we had a conversation via Messenger, I think, where you said, I love this book, which probably means that you'll hate it. Um, <laughs> I don't hate it. Uh, it's not my kind of thing. I mean, my, the first thing I do when I get a book is I pick it up and I scan through it and I'm like, oh, there aren't any pictures in this. There aren't any diagrams. <laughs> there are. Flowcharts. Not really. Not really. I, like, I do like a bit of a visual um, to help me get There's my head no around pictures stuff. pictures of pigs. There's no pictures of pigs unlike last last week's book, but I'll tell you what I do like about it. It's called the Finance Book. It's by Stuart Warner and Sai Hussein, and it's apparently it's essential reading for any non finance professional. It's easy to read and practical. And I would agree with that. It's the layout is straightforward, easy to follow, easy to understand and consistent. They have different elements to each chapter. So there's some need to know stuff. Um, There's in practice. When is this important? Um, So it. It's, you know, nice to know. So it it, it, holds your hand. The flow of the book is brilliant in that it starts off with, you know, finance systems. You know, what you need to have in place? And it goes right the way through to valuing a business for sale um, and and beyond, really. Uh, Which, again, it works, you work through it gently, um, which I quite liked. Uh, Then I... There were a couple of chapters that stood out for me. Um, is it one of the ones that I said, you've got to read this chapter? That, yes. <laughs> so, you said, didn't you? Chapter 28. And this is, why. well, why did you choose chapter 28, Tracy? Tell me why. Uh, when, when we've been talking about... Is it because you hate me? <laughs> no. <laughs> When we profile a business
1: leader, we often talk about the businesses that they're involved in. And sometimes I delve into Companies House and have a look at their accounts. And sometimes um, when we're referring to articles, they they refer to the valuation of businesses. Mm. And this chapter is all about business valuation. So I thought at least it would refer back to something that we've discussed in the past.
0: Yeah, and it does that. And it is a kind of idiot's guide that doesn't make you feel like an idiot. And that's what I quite liked about it. Uh, Because it talks about, just even on the most basic of levels, it talks about the fact that there are two ways to value a a business. There's the asset-based method and the income-based method.
1: Do you know what I really liked? is that It said that valuation of a business is an art. Uh, I I always
0: say that accounts actually is
1: an art form.
0: I suppose. Well, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it is. That stood
1: out for me. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. I'm, well, I, well, it's it. Well, I'm it, an artist. It's a dark art from my point of view because I, a black art because I have no idea. But no. what I, what I liked about that particular chapter is that it talks about asset based valuations for argument's sake, and it lists um, the balance sheet item, and then it has a column about the valuation, and in every item that it lists, it basically says stock. Uh, the age and saleability of stock will be evaluated. And then it says, see chapter 11, stock. So if you're thinking, oh, crikey, what do I need to know about stock? It's signposting you back through the book. So it is very well joined up, which sounds bleeding obvious, but not all books do that. So I I was grateful for that because it's like, oh, hang on a minute, what do I need to know about that? Oh, and there it is. So so that kind of worked for me. Um, But The other chapters that I quite like, there's a chapter around governance, corporate governance, which I think is something that so often gets overlooked. And people just go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. And it's like, no, actually, you have a responsibility and this is what, you know, this is what you need to know. And you get involved in in various boards of charities, yes. so you need to know that stuff anyway, don't you? Yeah, totally. So, I, yeah, I'm I'm a trustee of a charity, and um, I'm a board director of of Oswestry Business Improvement District. So, yeah, you need to absolutely know where your liability begins and ends, and and you know what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. They talk about whistleblowing as well, um, and you know where you're protected and where you're not protected. So that was just an interesting chapter in its own right. And then I'll I'll, I'll let you tell me your favourite chapters in a minute, Tracy. But the other one that I was quite excited about is chapter 32, Profitable Pricing. And certainly in my experience when I'm coaching people, the one thing that they don't often have a handle on is their pricing structure. And although this is chapter 32, I kind of feel it should almost be further... Towards the beginning of the book, because if you get your pricing structure wrong uh, and you start discounting things, thinking that that's the right thing to do, as we, uh, you know, as many of us know, you know, every pound that you discount, okay, there's a knock-on as to how much money you need to generate to replace that. Um, so those are the ones that that really resonated with me. You love this book. What
1: I liked it. Um, it's not aimed at me, like I say. Uh, it's not aimed at accountants. It underlines that in many many places in the book. However, I have experience of writing and delivering programmes for non-finance professionals uh-huh. myself. So I, I could sort of see, oh, that that's a useful way of putting something. And it, and it is explained in a way that I would explain these things. So I would highly recommend this book. It It doesn't talk down to you, but at the same time, it's not pulling any punches and trying to make it account something that it isn't. I do particularly like the bit at the beginning, which explains how the finance department is organised and also, you know, what the difference is between management accounts and financial accounts and why it's important to have um, separation of duties, segregation of duties and access controls. And it even goes um, on and explains the different representative bodies. So the difference between chartered, certified, public sector management technicians and tax professionals. So I, I think... It is a book that I would really highly recommend for anybody who has got aspirations to go just beyond their silo in a business. So, if you're working in a big business and say you're working in HR, if your only aspiration is just to stay within that silo, fair enough. But if you want to get involved in the business in a bigger way, you need to understand at least some elements mm-hmm. of the finance. And each of these sections, tells you where to look on the accounts for the thing that's affected by this. So if it's talking about stock, it tells you whereabouts in the accounts to find it. Talking about revenue and talking about expenses, it points you to that particular part of the financial statement. So I, I really would highly recommend it for anybody who's either initially studying business or actually, like I say, wants to get involved in running a business, large or small. It's a nice, handy little size. List price is fourteen ninety nine. I I believe I paid less than a third f- for this. Yeah,
0: we paid about a fiver. It's about, about a fiver. A fiver yes. So it's
1: a, yeah. at a fiver. That is incredible value yeah. for money.
0: One of the other things that it has, and again, um, as somebody who's very visual, they they have an appendix, which is... The um, which are the finance financial accounts and supporting notes for that well-known high street vegan sausage roll company Greggs. Yes, they use them a lot. It's throughout got their twenty fifteen yeah. um, accounts as an appendix, and then it refers to them throughout the book, so you can go and look to an actual set of accounts. And see, okay, what does that mean? Where does that? Because when you're presented with um, a set of accounts, sometimes it just you just yeah, go 20, okay. 30 pages. Yeah, and of you're like, what on words, earth? Yeah. Where do I begin? So that that is really helpful. It also has a glossary, so for the layperson, just being able to go, oh, just remind me what is capex, or just remind me what is um, debt factoring, or whatever, just gives you a little um, summary of what that is. And if I have one niggle about this book at the back, so it must have impressed me in some way because I saw further resources and I thought, oh, and it says further resources, go to www.financebook.co.uk. So I went there and basically there's nothing other than just the start of the book and you can download an excerpt. And it's like, no, if I'm looking for supporting resources, Further resources, that would suggest to me that it's stuff that's not in the book. So that's just a little, um, a little note to the authors there, uh, or whoever is running that website. You need a bit more content. But... Overall, I think we would recommend this, wouldn't we? And if you want to buy a copy of it for a fiver, all you need to do while while it is still at a fiver, pop along to our website, thebusinesscommunity, and if you click on the link and buy it through our website, we get a couple of pence, which goes towards keeping the website live and hosting our SoundCloud account, which means that you can access the podcasted version of this web um, this show through your usual podcast apps.
1: This week's profile is on a gentleman whose full title I am about to give you. Wait for it. His Royal Highness, the Prince Charles, Philip Arthur George, Prince of Wales, KG, KT, GCB, OMAK, QSO, CC, PC, ADC, brackets P, Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, Duke of Rothsay, Earl of Carrick, Baron of Renfrew, Lord of the Isles and Prince and Great Steward of Scotland get that that on an
0: application (laughs) form
1: so prince charles is allegedly worth 400 million and although he isn't the monarch he doesn't pay taxes there is that question of how he earns his money and we we were reflecting on this when heather suggested we look at prince charles initially i was like he's a prince you know and, and sort of at the back of my mind i'm thinking yes but He's 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 got to be earning this money. It, some of it will have been passed down, but I think the whole part of running an estate is that you've got to keep it going. And I then capitulated. On my initial reaction was what? <laughs> to okay, yeah, there's there's some businessy stuff to bring out here. And then as I'm looking further, it's there's a heck of a lot of stuff that to do with business that Prince Charles is supporting through his charities. So, yes, thank you, Heather. I wouldn't have thought of Prince Charles, but there we go. So I I initially looked at where he gets his money from. And unlike his mother, um, who gets her money from several sources, Prince Charles' main source of
0: income comes from the Duchy of Cornwall. Which was gifted to him on his 21st birthday by his mother. Now, I didn't know that. So... The duchy was
1: established in 1337. I knew that much. And it serves as a personal income for all princes of Wales. So presumably until it was gifted to the current Prince of Wales, it was owned by the sovereign. When there isn't a, a duchy, it will, yeah, yes. it's it's owned by the sovereign.
0: And when Charles becomes king, it will pass to William because heir to the throne He's always the Prince of Wales. So I don't know how that'll work.
1: Yes. And the and the Duke of Cornwall. Very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. The Duchy of Cornwall is made up of 131,000 acres of land in twenty-three countries with a portfolio of assets including rental and commercial properties. And Prince Charles earns money based on the Duchy's annual revenue. But he does not, crucially, have access to the capital value. So there were rules put in place many, many years ago which prevented the current duke from selling it off, basically, Mm. and and taking the capital. According to reports, Prince Charles earned $28.6 million, it says here, um, from last year from the Duchy of Cornwall. And money earned from the Duchy goes to help... um, Obviously, fund his lifestyle and his public, charitable, and private activities, and also those of his children, Prince William, Prince Harry, and their families. At the moment, contrary to popular belief, perhaps, Prince Charles does not earn any money from the sovereign grant. Um, The cost of most of his royal tours is covered through these funds because he's doing them um, in place of the Queen, in place of the sovereign. Um, And also, When he does ascend to the throne, he will get some new assets and funds. So like Queen Elizabeth, Prince Charles will one day earn personal income from the Duchy of Lancaster as well. And on top of that, he will inherit money from his mother and father. And the two of those individually have a portfolio of stock investments, as well as Balmoral uh, Balmoral Castle in Scotland and Sandringham Estate in England. So Heather, you set me off down this track. I found it absolutely fascinating. Did you instantly regret your choice when you started searching, or did you find it interesting too?
0: I found it interesting. the The reason why I'd suggested him was, um, because I, in very simplistic terms, I thought, well, Dutchy Organics, um, the Dutchy Estate, Highgrove House, um, they all are businesses. They all generate money so if they're selling organic product i know that waitrose um own that brand now but it's a sort of joint so it's obviously it's his it's his brand but they own um the business side of it
1: exclusive rights to manufacture
0: distribute and sell there we go that's that's the official terminology so i was thinking well so how does all of this work so like an idiot the first thing i do is go to company's house and try and find out who are the directors of these various entities, and of course, Prince Charles's name is never going to appear, is it? Because he, it, but his trust, the his charitable foundation is connected. So, m- what I don't know enough about is how money is routed through all of these different organisations, which ultimately then feed into the prince's charitable foundation, which then is used to support all different types of charities and businesses, etc., etc. So, it. So it it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but but it was interesting. And there's, you know, there are some really interesting stories about um, property that he has. Um, there was an article about how um, at Highgrove, I think it was, or on the Dutch estate, um, he was planting trees, which he claimed he owned, which were being grown on the estate. He was then selling the trees to the estate because he was saying, well, I personally own the tree, therefore I can sell that tree to the estate. and and in fact, there, there was an investigation into whether he was using some sort of loophole or not um, to transfer pricing. Suddenly springs y- to mind. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's all a bit it's all a bit complicated. But yeah. on the Duchy of Cornwall um, website, they do print um, their financial statements. Yep. Um And absolutely. if you if you like a good financial statement, then you can read your way <laughs> through these um, to see. You know, the mechanics of how it all works. So from
1: the Duchy website, I did read that um, the Duke, that's Prince Charles, is actively involved in running uh, the Duchy and his philosophy is to improve the estate and pass it on to future dukes in a stronger and better condition. And the Prince of Wales takes a long term stewardship approach and has proved that environmental and agricultural best practice are compatible with a sound financial Return. So you read the accounts, did you, Heather?
0: No, I didn't read them. I just saw that you could (laughs) (laughs) you could if you wanted to. I should have got my finance book. But I bet
1: you did. Well, the Dutch's accounts are audited and they do actually Because of all of these laws to protect the estate for future generations, they go to the Treasury and they're placed before the House of Commons and the House of Lords uh, in order to fulfil the statutory requirements. And the Prince of Wales does publish details of his income on his own website, which is princeofwales.gov.uk. So I read the annual review um, for last year. It describes the work that they do, the income and expenditure and... um, in 2017 2018 year income for the duchy was 21.7 million pounds and that was by far the largest there was um 1.2 million from sovereign grant which covers areas where i said before where he's, he's asking to visit on behalf of either the sovereign or the government and um and half a million pounds from government departments and made a cash surplus of £388,000 in that year. So it was interesting. I mean, I, I didn't delve any deeper than just looking at the headline figures, but you can see all of the details to do with these accounts, which is why I thought actually, in a way, of all the people we've profiled, that there was a lot more available here because a lot of it is on public record.
0: Yeah, in that regard, you're absolutely right. And as part of um, the report, they they go into the bit that I'm most interested in is the way that um, they treat their employees. So they do an employee survey, um, 87% response rate, um, they launched uh, a management development program and flexi time, and then it talks about what the staff view as our strengths, and then where they tell us we can improve. And they've published those as well. So um, we have room to improve support of self-development opportunities and leadership and management capabilities. And there you go. They've launched their management development program. So it would appear um, that they they listen to the feedback. Uh, And I think that's, you know, not many organisations print that sort of information um, for all and sundry to see. So I thought that was quite
1: good. And we've mentioned um, the Prince's Trust several times on the show. Mm -hmm. I'm a a volunteer business mentor with the trust and have been for many years. And it is a great organisation. But I thought I'd mention some of the other um, organisations that he's a, a founding patron of. So Prime Cymru is a registered charity. based in Wales, and it's dedicated to providing practical support to people aged 50 and over who want to become and remain economically active. Then there's one I hadn't heard of, Turquoise Mountain, was established in 2006 by the Prince of Wales to invest in historic areas and traditional crafts to provide job skills and a renewed sense of pride. And it's created sustainable urban regeneration that hosts the revival of artisan industries. And actually, they're working in Afghanistan, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And then back to one that I have heard of and we have again mentioned on the show before, which is Business in the Community, which is a business-led membership organisation dedicated to responsible business. And uh, just just, just because I can say this, for the last 10 to 12 years, I have actually had a Christmas card from the Prince of Wales.
0: Wow!
1: Because of the work I do with the Prince's Trust. And didn't you get to go to a garden party? I did, yeah. That was very good fun. Was was that a couple of years ago, I think? It was, yeah. We're we're heading back into the past now. But yes, I did. So um, the the stuff that um, he puts his name to. So Prince Charles doesn't give money to these. He does... Obviously, um, he is involved in it in some way, but he's not the main funder of these charities. It's him founding them, put his name to them, putting the ethos in there and actually being the face of these charities, um, which which I think is really commendable. There is an awful lot more that he does. And if you go and have a look on the website, you'll find out more about the charities and organisations that he funds.
0: Heather, did you have a quote? Well, I struggled with a business-related quote. uh, And I think... Whatever you think of the royal family, whatever you think of Prince Charles as an individual, you know, he, he is a human being. Um, and his, the quote I've got is, all the time I feel I must justify my existence, which is quite a sad thing, I think. That is a little sad.
1: I've got one quote here, which is business-related one, and it's about leadership. Um, he's quoted as saying, great leaders demonstrate focus, dynamism and sometimes dogged persistence and the unique ability to drive forward the agendas about which they are passionate, while also, crucially, bringing others with them. And I think he's perhaps speaking for himself at that point. So there we go. We took an unexpected turn by by going to Prince Charles, but I think there's plenty of business interest in that profile. If you want to know more, then go and take a look at the Duchy of Cornwall website or indeed uh, the princeofwales.gov.uk website. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening.
0: You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.